Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a uh, narrow set of ideas, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Schools around the country shut down at the start of the COVID-19 pand uh, pandemic, and they hobbled together learning plans through another year. Precautions are important, and everyone's trying to figure out how to navigate the new environment. But when parents struggle to find adequate learning options for their children, the Overton window for education policy shifts. And today I'm joined by my colleague Ben DeGroe, the Director of Education Policy here at the Mackinac Center, a free market think tank based in Midland, Michigan. Uh, he's working to expand education options in Michigan and improve opportunities to families. Ben, welcome. Hey, it's so good to be with you and your uh, podcast audience. What did the COVID-19 pandemic change in the relationship between parents and schools? The COVID-19 pandemic changed a lot. Fundamentally, that relationship that parents take for granted with the school system, a lot of families, whether in Michigan or more broadly, already had kind of a rough relationship with the, the local school system, uh, particularly in those areas that are economically disadvantaged. Um, those communities, particularly families, had larger distrust of the school district as an institution. But for a lot of families, the, the middle class dream is to buy a home and exercise the one kind of educational choice that almost nobody talks about, and that is paying for a mortgage to move into a school district that has a good reputation, may actually be a good school district overall, uh, has in the data, it's providing a lot of kids with an educational boost to get them to college or career, and so families are making that upward climb. But these families... A lot of them in Michigan, especially we've talked to, encountered the, in the COVID pandemic uh, a, a different relationship you know, where you expect your kid to be uh, in school and the, the school system per, to perform the sort of functional custodial child care uh, service to you and your family. All of a sudden, kids were, were in uh, remote programs from home and parents got a, an up close and personal view of what uh, the educational program looked like and the interaction between the student and the teacher. And in many cases, the inability of school districts to implement uh, a program uh, technologically or to, um, in many cases, teachers who did not deliver on what kids needed and uh, the frustrations mounted as parents, many of whom were working at home, had to also deal with their children's lack of learning at home. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because we have this legacy system and this legacy system often seems just immune to reform or it fights reform because for the most part, it gives people what they want. Like it provides a good education for the majority of people. Well, there are some problems with that because it doesn't for everyone, uh, which is why school choice is important. But in this case, that that basic assumption that we can perpetuate the system because it mostly works for everyone, well, doesn't really work when a lot of people are unhappy with this and a lot of people matter to policy. Right. And when you have students and families at the margins who are frustrated with the conventional system, 
Um, and you can put things in place like charter schools or online charter schools or, um, you know, families of means that can find ways to put their children in private schools or, you know, kids with special needs or learning disabilities and the challenges they face. The system works well, as you said, for most students, but for these at the margins, you know, okay, we can kind of find a solution for them and most people are happy. So there's not enough political oomph or impetus to, to, to prompt that kind of change. But now when you've got larger segments of uh, middle-class families who paid for the school district they're living in and the school district is not responsive. Um, they keep changing their plans. One moment they say there's going to be an in-person option for your child. And the next week, well, the, the facts on the ground have changed and we have to go back to remote instruction. Um, whether that's coming from the, the dictates of a public health bureaucracy or the negotiations with the teachers union and trying to meet those demands all of a sudden, the parents realized that the system that worked generally well for most of their kids um, is not is not working well because it's it's when push comes to shove, it has to meet the demands of other actors besides the parents who and the students who are the customers. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to push back on just a little uh, bit because it's more than parents who pay for school. Uh, for schools. Like we all are participating in this public finance system where, um, you know, we're paying income taxes to schools, we're paying sales taxes to schools, we're paying property taxes to schools, we're paying federal income taxes to pay, uh, to pay for schools. And, and so like, even if your kids aren't, or you don't have kids that are in the public school system though, you should still care about it. You should still care that it's providing a good education to the public or, or it's educating kids to so that we have a well-educated public. Um, and even that, though, starts to get kind of put in, like people start to question that if the majority of the users of children and parents are unhappy with the system. So why does this this change in relationship matter to policy? It's a great question. And you, and the point you bring up is important. When I talk about parents paying for schools, I'm especially thinking of these middle-class families who are paying the mortgage as a ticket. Now, they're also paying property taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, but as, as you and I know, uh, in Michigan particularly, it's a variety of different taxes that are paying for those schools. So um, the broader public gets the, gets the sense that the system is frustrating families and uh, the lack of in-person instruction is not meeting kids' needs. And there's documented reports about students being months behind in learning or there are students who are facing extra mental health challenges. And suddenly there's at least a conversation opened up in the broader public, the broader tax paying public, uh, individuals and businesses that the system we've crafted and that has functioned generally well for most students for, for many decades, maybe it's the way it's constructed and designed is not optimal for the result we want. Or maybe more importantly, we, we don't have a really good shared sense of what we want public education to do. And, you know, for families, it's prepare my child for success in life, whether it be college, career, make them, you know, functional, or it could be um, help my child become a good citizen. And that's a general public interest as well. We want informed citizens to perpetuate um, our society and our government as we have it. So 
when you have conflicting visions about what public education should be, and it's not even meeting the basic expectations that parents have and now the broader public has, now you have a sense of an added sense of chaos and turmoil that fuels conversations about what can we do differently to make education work better. Okay, so let's talk about where the Overton window on education policy is right now. Again, like in, here in Michigan, um, you know, and in a lot of other places, you have the conventional public school system uh, where kids go where uh, based on where they live. Uh, you're at the school district that you're assigned to, and we hope that they do a good job, and some of them do, and some of them don't. Um, and then we also have charter schools, uh, which can provide options or which can start up in, in places where the charters uh, feel like they can uh, provide something different or unique. Uh, what else do we got? So you mentioned kind of the array of choices we have. Um, and we'll use Michigan as an example. Other states looks a little different. We can put Michigan in that broader context in a moment. But uh, for the 1.6 million school aged children we have in Michigan, there are, you know, as we said, residential choice. Families can pay for a school based on what district they live in. Uh, for whatever reason, your local conventional school district doesn't work. You can exercise schools of choice or a similar program, which allows you to transfer to another school district. If that district has room, you know, they set the parameters of how many spaces are available. So if you can get in for the deadline, uh, we have oh, a couple hundred thousand kids in schools of choice across Michigan. So that's been growing. As you mentioned, public charter schools, um, which are publicly funded, publicly accountable, uh, often contract with uh, private operators or nonprofit operators to and, and outside authorizers to provide kids with a different kind of public education. Some of those are online, but most of those are brick and mortar. Uh, the other choices available to families are, in Michigan particularly, uh, you are self-funded. So private education, a little over 100,000 kids will go to private schools. Most of those are religious, religiously affiliated. And then you have, before the pandemic, about 50,000 students who are home educated, where the parents are the primarily responsible, delivering that education. And that we've seen those numbers increase with covid uh, as well. So those are, that's kind of the playing field for the options that are currently available. Well, that was, I mean, those are clearly within the Overton window. I know because we're doing these things right now. Um, and the forces that are trying to um, shift the window, uh, there are uh, conventional public school district advocates uh, who are trying to shift that window in, eliminate some of those choice options, especially charter schools. Um uh, they would like to push it so that it's just conventional public school districts for everyone. I know because that's kind of the implications and to, uh, to uh, keep increasing um, funding to those institutions. On the other hand, though, there is some there are some things that in Michigan seem to be like while we can talk about them and while we're advocating for them are we, we just don't know whether they're in the window or not. And these are some of the things that you're calling for. So what do you want to change? Right. So what we've seen nationally, I'll set this as the, the frame for this part of the discussion. Um, for 30 years, we're 30 years into the national modern school choice movement. And by school choice in this sense, I mean uh, some sort of publicly funded or underwritten option for families to choose a private education started in Wisconsin, our neighbors to the West, 
with the Milwaukee voucher program. And now we're up to, as of this year, about 30 like different states. Uh, underappreciated just how much uh, the Midwest are, uh, Midwest states are um, pioneers in this field. Right. And I'm loath to mention, but Ohio is also one of the early uh, pioneers in this area. Their, their program was a test case um, that went to the Supreme Court in 2002 and, and told, uh, set the precedent that the First Amendment allows for school choice programs that are religiously neutral. As long as parents can choose between a religious or non-religious private school, then the First Amendment can't block you from exercising that kind of choice. Wait, can you explain that conflict? Because I think there, it's it's important for Michigan to know what what what's going on there. Sure. So this like is, why uh, can uh, I mean, isn't the essential question? Can states use their tax money to fund religious schools if those religious schools provide a public purpose like public education? It it is a topic of conversation that that lives on in policy debates and uh, the Cleveland program that this case I'm talking about in Zellman was one for low-income kids in Cleveland, and it basically created a, offered a voucher for use in a uh, religious or secular private public private school, excuse me. And the Supreme Court of the United States found that despite the common objections you hear that this is an issue of, that violates the separation of church and state, um, the Supreme Court said, no, the First Amendment allows for this because the parents are making the choice. They have a choice between different kinds of religious institutions or no religion whatsoever. And so that passes the test. And so ever since 2002, that main obstacle has been eliminated. Um, and, and now, as you said, all the states around Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin, and even Illinois have some version of a choice program. And now states all over the country do as well leading up to and following last year, the Espinoza decision, uh, which was the big successor case to Zellman at the Supreme Court, which said not only can you not use the First Amendment to block these programs, you can't also use state Blaine amendments, which we can talk about. I mean, you're going to have to because, <laughs> come on, it's that's a technical term. And if uh, so, someone can live their life very happily without ever hearing about Blaine amendments. So what are they? Wouldn't we all be happier if we hadn't have to listen to and talk about Blaine amendments, but they they exist. So going back to the late 19th century, a leading Republican politician by the name of James Blaine from the state of Maine uh, was pushed these amendments first at the U.S. Constitution and failed and then ultimately got them into many state constitutions. And they basically said, we are not going to use public funds for the purpose of supporting sectarian institutions, which at the time, you may not, our listeners may or may not know that public schooling was a largely ecumenical Protestant in nature. And uh, teachers read to students from the King James Bible and led in Protestant prayers. And so so public yeah. education used to not be the uh, um, well, what it seems like it is today, is what you're saying? Absolutely. Right. Different context before probably the last 60 years um, where public education looks a lot different based on our perspective. But How did for, that pass First Amendment establishment questions? Right. It does cause people to rethink the whole paradigm, what this looks like. But 
at the time when Blaine was uh, a leading force in politics, they were concerned about waves of Catholic immigration and laws that would fund uh, Catholic seminaries and Catholic schools and institutions. And so this sectarian language was commonly understood to mean you can fund our Protestant public schools, but you can't use the money to fund Catholic schools. And it's been now wielded in the modern age by the opponents of school choice, whether they be the teachers unions, uh, the ACLU, American United for Separation of Church and State, they wield these um, to enforce and try to eliminate as private school choice programs in the States, which they did with some success before the Espinoza case last year. And now um, in most States, they have no leg to stand on, which is a big victory for school choice, but Michigan. <laughs> yes. You said most States, most States, right? So there are a handful of States with different versions of a Blaine amendment and Michigan's is called a Blaine, but actually came about long after um, this politician left the scene. It's, a, it's the most modern and probably the most restrictive version of these anti-aid amendments. Uh, Michigan voters adopted it in 1970 in response to an attempt to um, use state funds to pay for private school teachers, which people today think would think is just a strange policy proposal, but it was actually proposed by the Michigan Board of Education and favored by a fair number in the state legislature, but caused quite a controversy and led to this huge backlash. Uh, the teachers union funded an amendment that won the voter support. And now we have the strictest law in the books that denies parents the ability to use public funds directly or indirectly to support their children's public or private education. So that's where we stand today. That's a strange, uh, gosh, education in the past seems so strange to me. Like why, why were, were taxpayers just going to pay for private school teachers? Well, I think the argument at the time was at least some segment of the population recognized the public value that private schools offered. And at the time, those private schools were overwhelmingly Catholic uh, and urban Catholic schools had a strong academic reputation. But during the 1960s, they were declining in terms of enrollment, and people were concerned we needed to maintain these. Um, it's a policy debate that really doesn't even fit with our current context, so it's hard to weigh in on it mm -hmm. per se. But the fact that you know they were trying to directly fund private schools with state money, we're just saying um, the funds should go into the parents' hands. The parents should be able to direct it and not have that choice taken away by the state. So we think that that measure in the Constitution is outdated. It's rooted in pretty, pretty, pretty bad anti-Catholic animus and bigotry and um, is holding back families today in a way that it shouldn't be. OK, you don't like it. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Well, uh, in the news, you will be hearing about or have heard about. Uh, a new lawsuit, federal lawsuit that the Mackinac Center Legal Foundation is a leading force behind. And that is we're representing five families um, across the state of Michigan who want to use something called the Michigan Education Savings Program, which is a 529 college savings plan. Which does what? It's a tax exempt fund that's recognized by the federal government and the state government. Uh, 
And the federal government a few years ago said you can not only use these to save money for your college expenses, you can also use them as an option for K-12 tuition. Mm -hmm. Okay, so again, like this is kind of the important of what the federal government is offering because uh, as an individual, the federal government doesn't stop you from paying for private sector or or for private education. It doesn't uh, stop you from paying for private, uh, uh, private college tuition. What this program is doing is saying that if you set money inside of one of these accounts, we're going to give you a special tax advantage, which is any money that you put in this account can grow tax-free and you can do it. So it's just saying that for this money that goes into these funds that you use for specified purposes, we're going to give you a tax advantage. And the state does that as well uh, because 520, uh, uh, these plans are, um, are exempt from state taxes as well. So is that... Right. So, yeah, the federal law creates this tax-exempt status. You described it well. And it gives states the option to add further tax benefits to their specified state plans. The Michigan version gives a tax deduction to people who contribute into these savings plans for their, for their children or for another child beneficiary. Mm-hmm. And But now, this was not controversial at all until the federal tax reform allowed K-12 to be a possible expense alongside college or post-secondary. So the state of Michigan effectively is not letting families use the their Michigan 529 plan to help pay for a private religious school option. Whereas people may not even be aware of this obscure reality, but there are a handful of school districts in Michigan. I would call them the more, uh, tend to be the more exclusive school districts where if you don't live in that school district, but you want to attend, you actually have to pay tuition to get in. Uh, People don't realize that this kind of arcane thing exists, but if I wanted to use my 529 savings plan to enroll in Birmingham Public Schools in Oakland County, which is one of these exclusive destination districts, I'm gonna have to pay more than $10,000 in tuition for my child to go there. And the state would say that's okay because it doesn't, you know, federal law allows it. But if I want to take my 529 plan and use some of those funds to pay for my child to go to the Catholic or Lutheran school down the street, it's not eligible because of that amendment in the Constitution that we've called the Blaine Amendment. Mm-hmm. And, and so like the, this particular constitutional amendment is saying that in, in this case where the state policy is saying, look, we're, we're, you can... Uh, uh, put money into this account and you can deduct it, but you can't then spend it on um, on these, pri- uh, these private religious schools because that uh, is an affront to this constitutional amendment. So even that just slight benefit of like for these, uh, for we have preferences on how you spend your money. We want you to, uh, to encourage you to, um, to save money for your children's education, but not if they're going to go to this private secular school or uh, private school or secular or uh, private or Catholic or religious school. Sorry. Right. So we, we at least think there's a legal argument that can be made here and a, a viable legal argument. Of course, it'll take a long time to play out in the courts and we'll have to see where it goes. But given the amount of families we have talked to that we're hearing from, and particularly the five families we're working with who own these savings plans and frustrated by the, the COVID epidemic 
and wanted to get their kids a different kind of education, be able to help pay for it with these plans. Um, we know the opportunity is ripe to make this legal argument because families in Michigan are well behind choice opportunities that are available in other states. And these, you know, if we can't make this argument now on behalf of these families, then when will we be able to do that? Uh, so as, as you put it, the COVID uh, situation and the way it's disrupted schooling and all the ways we talked about and more has really opened the Overton window uh, because more parents clamoring for choice options and this, this federal 529 plan vehicle that allows us to, to push the window forward. I mean, we're going to see, aren't we? Uh, it could be that COVID-19 has done nothing to change the education uh, platform, that that these interest in doing pod learning, of, of, uh, of home, doing more homeschooling, of trying to find, uh, trying to exercise options outside of uh, whatever your public school district makes available. It's possible that nothing changes, um, that that even though there's some more interest, that it doesn't result in a change in policy. So what do you think are going to be the factors about whether things change or not? That's good. So this is going to start with where families are at and how the school systems are responding in, I guess this is year two and a half or year three of COVID. Um, a lot of families, as I've alluded to before, they want stability. They want a school system that provides the custodial care of their children and a basic education. Um, there's disagreements about um, COVID protocols and, you know, masks versus no masks and vaccine requirements versus no vaccine requirements. And the opinion that we can see in public is very divided on these things. And so I think what's going to determine is how long um, there's, a, it's not, probably not going to be a majority of students and parents, but a substantial minority of parents who are going to feel this angst about the school system is frustrating what they want and need out of it because of, because of having to negotiate COVID policies. Um, so the longer schools fumble that and school, school boards are not responsive or don't communicate well or just provide an in, unstable or inconsistent kind of education, the more it's going to fuel this parent demand. And that parent demand is what it's going to take to give us the opportunity to, to push the window forward. And if, if the parent demand uh, isn't substantiated or the, the entrenched interest in the system wield the tools that they have effectively, then, then we may not be able to move the window. Uh, but again, if you don't take this opportunity, we would look back and regret because families really need options. So let's think about this from the other side, which is like uh, from a conventional school district perspective, from uh, you know the uh, uh, all the rest of the interests who are involved in maintaining the status quo in the system, aren't they just trying to figure uh, navigate a dangerous and unknown environment themselves? I mean, don't they still want to try to serve um, serve their students and their parents' interests? I don't think there's anything about COVID per se that has um, that has shifted the goodwill or intentions of groups or individuals who work in the public education system. I think most of them are goodwilled and intention. The problem with the system has never been that it people didn't intend for it to work. It's that the structure of the system is designed in a way that um, is not efficient at meeting all students' needs. 
but again, as we talked about, it meets a majority of the needs. The pressures of COVID have squeezed that. So it's even more, more people are left out at the margins. From their perspective, um, teachers and uh, administrators um, have their own risk tolerances about COVID and public health issues. Um, they have their own comfort level or lack thereof with virtual instruction programs. And uh, teachers may not be effective at that. Um, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, in-person instruction tends to work better. So we know that's we know that's a fact. Um, but for most people, I mean, for most virtual people, learning's got to work for some. Exactly, people, right? for most people, the in-person instruction is is there. The, the virtual option has worked well for families and situations, and obviously should not be taken away. But to put all kids in that virtual learning box has not worked well. We've, we've seen that. Um, so I don't know how better to answer that question than to say that the people in the system have generally have good intentions and goodwill, but even more frustration about figuring out how to make it work for families. So why don't we, why don't we fund students and respect the rights of parents to decide because they're active parents and their children, partners and their children's success. And if we give them that that power and that ability, um, we're more likely to lead to to different kinds of education systems that meet individual students' needs. What do you want from lawmakers over the next two years? So what we want from lawmakers is, is to take a different approach to this topic, because for the last 50 years, Michigan legislators have seen the, the Blaine Amendment as an obstacle that's preventing them to have to even think about using all the tools in the toolbox to help families with the options they need. But now by showing that there are parent, there's parent demand for more options and that there's a willingness to take on the Blaine Amendment legally, um, it's time for the legislature to explore things like education savings accounts that other states around us have done, like West Virginia and Kentucky. I know you've talked with West Virginia about this. Um, to recognize this, this meets families where they're at with the needs they have uh, to provide access to a school that's going to provide them full-time in-person learning if that's what works best, or a a uh, a variety of options that they can spend on things to help supplement their kids' education at home, or to do some kind of hybrid learning, pod learning. Um, but again, if we have if if we for Fixed on funding the system as it is, we're going to miss a huge opportunity. Lawmakers will miss a huge opportunity to fund students and help provide a, a broader array of solutions that meet individual student needs. Ben, good luck shifting the Overton window. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about the Overton window at www.theovertonwindow.com.